And last week, I said that the church's mission is worship. Even in a sense, more primarily than evangelism. As John Piper has famously said, missions exist or evangelism exists because worship doesn't. The goal of all things is that the earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And when that comes to pass, there won't be any more evangelism. But as yet, the earth is not full of the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, Barbados is not even full of the knowledge of the Lord. When the scripture uses that language, it's not referring simply to intellectual knowledge about the Lord. But intimate knowledge of the Lord. The way that close friends really know each other. Or the way that a husband and wife really know each other. The earth is not yet full of the knowledge of the Lord. But Isaiah 11 and verse 9 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This shall be the end of all things. Eventually, one day, everyone on earth shall know the Lord. Listen as I read from Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray and ask God's help as we consider today the subject of evangelism. O Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand the work that is to be done between now and that day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of you. Lord, help us to do our part in that until that day comes to pass. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
So this morning we are looking at part two of the mission of the church. Last week we looked at worship. Today we're looking at evangelism. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. One day worship shall exist throughout the earth and evangelism won't. But for now it does. Let's begin though by considering one way in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, which is not evangelism. One way in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord is that God will take out of the earth those who don't know Him. So one way for God to make the earth full of His knowledge is to make everyone know Him. We're going to get there in a minute. But another way is to take out those who don't know Him. If you have a box full of red shirts and blue shirts, and you want the box to be full of red shirts, you can somehow change the blue shirts into red shirts, or you can take out the blue shirts, and then you're going to have a box full of red shirts. God will take out of the earth all who don't know Him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus speaks a parable, beginning in verse 24, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then listen to Jesus' explanation of this parable in verse 36. His disciples came and asked him, uh, came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their, like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's actually not the fate of the church to be taken out of the world. It's the fate of the wicked to be taken out of the world. Matthew 24, 27 to 41. 
Someone may object, yes, but it says, but one will be taken and the other left. Yes, it does say that. Let's have a look at it. Matthew chapter 24, pardon me, verse 37, not 27. Listen, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So who was taken in Noah's day? It was the wicked. They were taken away. They were swept away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. You understand this has been very badly misinterpreted. You actually want to be left when one is taken and the other is left. God is going to gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers as Matthew chapter 13 tells us. And God is going to sweep away to take out the wicked and the meek shall inherit the earth. The righteous shall never be moved. Isaiah chapter 11 which we just read speaks about Jesus, who's obviously the subject of the prophecy here, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, killing the wicked. Revelation 19 alludes very, very heavily to this section of Scripture, as much of Revelation alludes back to the prophets. Revelation 19 describes this that John saw. Verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges. Sound familiar? And makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Johannine terminology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So where is this battle taking place? In heaven or on earth? On earth. He's warring against the nations. He's coming to judge the nations, to strike down the nations, and he's doing it with a weapon coming from his mouth which is 
hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 11, where it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It goes on to say that on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, and etc., etc. describes this battle. When the battle ends, who's left on the earth? The righteous. And then in verse 21, we know that we're waiting, pardon me, in chapter 21, we know that we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We know that. Are we going to be taken to this new place? Or is this new place going to be actually here? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What we see in this section of scripture is a downward movement of God to earth to dwell with us. As it says earlier in Revelation chapter 11, at the last trumpet, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He shall rule here. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And He shall gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. One will be swept away, taken, and the other left. And behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You see, as this return of Christ to judge and to purge out of His kingdom, to purge out of this world, the unrepentant, those who have not bowed in allegiance to Him, those who have not trusted in His cross work for them, they will be cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just as we have been made new, behold, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And yet, there's continuity between our oldness and our newness. I've said before, but I'll say again, if I ran into someone now that I went to school with 15 or 20 years ago, they would still probably recognize me. Or at least if I told them my name, 
they'd recognize him. Oh yeah, we remember you. Because I'm not so new that there's no continuity with who I was before. So shall it be with the world. So shall it be with the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be newness and yet continuity. God said to Adam in the garden, Cursed is the ground because of you. But Romans 8 talks about how even the creation itself waits with eager anticipation. That even it itself will be free from its bondage to decay. Christ is making all things new. He's coming here to live with us forever in a new heavens and a new earth that's made new like us in which righteousness dwells which is full of the knowledge of the Lord and he's going to gather out of that kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers he's going to sweep away as he swept away in the days of Noah all of those who are not his people This is one of the ways in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And this is the context, the backdrop, the what makes evangelism in some sense necessary. This is what we're warning people about. The end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the wrath to come. People will be gathered out of Christ's kingdom. People won't have any share in the new heavens and the new earth. People will not be marching with the one who rides on the white horse with a sword coming from his mouth and that battle described in Revelation 19. People will be... People's blood will form... The stains on Jesus' robe on that day. This is what we warn earnestly people to avoid. Jesus shall reign. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Will you be there? Will you be privy to that blessing? Will you be included among that number who live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells? Will you be there when the new Jerusalem descends and God wipes away every tear from our eyes? One way in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord is that God will take out of the earth those who don't know Him. The second way, and this brings us closer to evangelism the second way in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord is that God will cause many to know him God will not only take some blue shirts out of the box so to speak but God will change blue shirts into red shirts he has the know-how to change the coloring of fabric if I may in Isaiah chapter 11 In verse 1 and verse 10, we read that this person prophesied is a root of Jesse. Uh, A 
or a, a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. It's interesting here that this doesn't say a shoot from the stump of David. Because we associate the messianic figure, the prophesied one, with David. After all, it's the son of David who's going to do all of these things. The reason why it refers to Jesse here is because it's actually trying to link the Messiah all the more closely with David. Because a a shoot from the stump of David is Solomon. But a shoot from the stump of Jesse is David. You see? So in Isaiah 11, we're basically reading about a David who's going to come and who's going to rule righteously. Who's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips kill the wicked and of course bring about a blessed state for those who are in his kingdom after all that's the imagery when we start talking about David in the Old Testament we need to think of a kingdom in David's own time uh, he and his kingdom prefigured the Christ and his kingdom and after David's death long after David's death the imagery of David and David's kingdom is used over and over again in the Old Testament to refer to the Christ and His coming kingdom. We need to understand that since Isaiah 11 is referring to David and using kingdom language, then it's the same person that's referred to here in Isaiah 11 as is referred to in other David prophecies such as Ezekiel 34 in Ezekiel 34 God prophesies against the current shepherds of Israel who are doing a bad job and then in verse 11 we read thus says the Lord God behold I I myself will search for my sheep And will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Wait, who's doing this? When it says I, who's doing it? The Lord, the Lord God. And I will bring them out, verse 13, from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, who? The Lord God. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, says the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough 
for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture, and to drink of clear water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet, and must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet, and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all, at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. Listen. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So who's it going to be? David or the Lord God? Because we read these interchangeably here. It holds true throughout the Old Testament as you read of David and Yahweh fulfilling the same promises. You know why? Because the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So it's David who's going to, as Isaiah 11 says, cause the wolf to dwell with the lamb, the leopard to lie down with the young goat. And it's David who's going to search for his sheep and seek them out. It's David who's going to seek out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered. It's David who's going to rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's through David that Yahweh will do these things. It's in David that Yahweh will do these things. It's in some sense David who will do these things. As Jesus himself said, who is David's greater son, who is the prophesied David, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Harkening back to Ezekiel 34. So one of the ways in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord is that God will take out of the earth all who don't know him. And another way is that God will cause many to know him. He will seek them out. And in and through His servant David, who we know is Christ Jesus from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He, Well, let me just go there. In Acts chapter 2, in case you're not familiar with it. David says, concerning Him that is the Christ... This is in verse 25. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Jesus is the true and ultimate David, the promised David. And so it is through him that God is going to establish a kingdom. It is through him that he's going to gather out of that kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. It's through him that he's going to seek and save his sheep who have gone astray and rescue the lost. Jeremiah 31 Beginning at verse 31 is a familiar passage to many of us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the one, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. You see? This is why we read Psalm 2 at the beginning. God has set His Son on His holy hill. God has given Him dominion. He shall rule and reign. He shall gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. He shall sweep them away as the wicked were swept away in the days of Noah. And yet He shall seek and save the lost. He shall seek and save the straying sheep. He shall nurture them and feed them as a shepherd. Rule over them. And He shall do all this by means of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies of. This is God's plan. Jesus didn't simply ask, act as a priest and as a prophet in our salvation. He did, but he did more than that. He came as a prophet to manifest fully, to reveal ultimately God to us in a greater measure of clarity than God had yet been revealed. For all the Old Testament prophets who spoke the very words of the Lord, none had yet said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Of no one else do we read that He is the image of the invisible God. You see, Jesus came to reveal God, to act as a prophet par excellence. Jesus also acted as a priest. And this is an aspect of His work, the aspect of His work that we are most familiar with. He acted as a priest on behalf of men offering up a sacrifice by which we're reconciled to God, namely the sacrifice of Himself. But you see, Jesus didn't merely come to act as a prophet and as a priest, but also as a king. 
1689 Confession, which our church holds to as our statement of faith, says in chapter 8 and paragraph 10, In respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need Christ's kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to His heavenly kingdom. You see, one of the things that Jesus came to do was to exercise dominion over us by convincing our stubborn hearts, by subduing our traitorous, treacherous, rebellious hearts, drawing our reluctant hearts. As we sing from time to time, Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. It couldn't be any other way. Because Jesus shall have the kingdom the Father gave Him. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, beginning at verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As we've seen already, part of the dominion that Christ was given was the earth. But as God said to Adam in the beginning, cursed is the ground because of you. So he says to the second Adam, as it were, restored, renewed is the ground because of you. It's through Christ that creation itself is freed from its bondage to decay, as Romans 8 says. But is it any... less necessary that Christ should have the peoples, nations, and languages that the Father gave Him, as that He should have the geography, the land which His Father gave Him? You see, it's by God's appointment not only that Christ should rule in the new heavens and a new earth, but that there should be people there. That it shouldn't be an empty universe where everybody has simply rebelled against Him and gone off and refused His offer of salvation. You see, just as it's certain and sure that the heavens and the earth shall be made new, it's certain and it's sure that there will be people to live in that new heavens and that new earth. Because the Ancient of Days didn't simply give the one like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, land, but He gave Him people. <clears throat> we read in Daniel 7, 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. We read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, which I quote frequently. Of those gathered around the throne in heaven, singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your people you rans- by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, and they shall reign on earth on the earth. You see, it's no less sure that there will be a people as that there will be land. Because the nations gather themselves together. The kings of the earth conspire together. As Psalm 2 says, against the Lord and against His anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, this anointed shall never rule. And God's plan and God's purpose shall be frustrated by us, the kings of the earth and the rulers. But verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy You see, the Ancient of Days gave the one like a son of man a kingdom, which included not only a land, but a people. And Christ shall have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. The sovereignty of God in appointing His Son King and Christ's exercise of His dominion guarantees That one day all things shall be in subjection to Him. Including many traitors like us. Who deserved by rights to be gathered out of His kingdom. Along with the other lawbreakers. But instead have been recipients of His benevolent kingship. He's used His dominion to convince us. To subdue us. To draw us. And he shall do the same for many others. All those whom the Ancient of Days gave to him in the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Hebrews 2 and verse 8 says. But the logic of the author of Hebrews necessitates that one day we shall see everything in subjection to Him, including all of those people whom the Father has given to Him. Now we come to evangelism. Now we come to evangelism. This sovereignty of God in giving to Christ Jesus a kingdom, which includes not only a land, but a people. The sovereignty of God in holding the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth in derision for the rebellion against Him. The sovereignty of God in reiterating, I have set 
my king in Zion, ought to be a great encouragement to us in doing that which we've been tasked to do. In Matthew 28, that familiar passage we read, Go make disciples of all nations. What a job! What a job! Consider simply the much smaller task. Go and make disciples in Pastor Row, in Map Hill, in St. Michael, on this tiny island of Barbados. Go make disciples. How overwhelming a task! Because we see people around us resisting the will of God. Resisting the declared purpose of God. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. We see people all around us going, nope. But how does God feel about that? Is He overwhelmed? He who sits in the heavens laughs and says, I have set my king in Zion. He shall rule and reign. He will have his kingdom. He will rule and reign over that which I have given to him. That purpose of God cannot fail. Yes, there will be those in the end who persist in unbelief, who persist in rejecting the free offer of the gospel, who will be swept away as the wicked were swept away in the days of Noah. There will be those in the end who persist in rejecting the preaching of Christ and Him crucified, who are taken while we are left. There will be those who persist in unbelief, who are gathered out of His kingdom. But there will be those who believe. There will be those who respond with faith. You know why? Because in Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days gave the one like the Son of Man a kingdom, He wasn't only talking about land. He was also talking about people. And there are those who have been ransomed with the blood of Christ from every tribe and language and people and nation who are His kingdom. It's Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10 tell us. This ought to be a great encouragement to evangelism. We have been commanded to evangelize, and I could just stand up here and tell you, we have to do it. Because Jesus said, go, make disciples of all nations. And all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth, so we have to obey Him. Go. And I could stand up here and say it's pragmatically necessary. Because how are people going to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone tells them? And so we need to go so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, 
So people will have a chance to call upon the name of the Lord, since everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And all of those things are true. And all of those things are right. And at times we emphasize some of those things. But today I want to bring you this encouragement. That as Isaiah 11 says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. It can't be any other way. Because that is God's purpose. Because Christ's kingdom shall not fail. And though one of the ways that God will do that is to gather out, to purge out of His kingdom, those who don't know Him, one of the ways that Christ's kingship is exercised in is, is in seeking out and saving the lost. Convincing, subduing, drawing. All those whom the Father has given to Him shall come. So we ought to be greatly encouraged in our evangelism. And we ought to then go and preach the gospel. We ought to get the content right as we go and preach the gospel. (coughs) Certainly we ought not to go out with heresies in our mouths. Spewing nonsense like Jesus being one of many ways. Or other nonsense like Jesus being merely an example to us and if we imitate Him well enough, God will accept us. Or things like that. We need to get the gospel right. That all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. That there's nothing that you can do, unbeliever, to merit the salvation that you so desperately need. There's nothing that you can do to obligate God. It has to simply be by grace and by grace alone. But because God is just, He will not overlook the demands of His holy law and simply wink at your sin and let it slide. You need someone to answer the demands of the law for you. And you can't do it. But praise be to God, there's one who can. Jesus Christ, who lived righteously for the unrighteous, in order that His righteousness would be imputed to us. And then who died bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So that we don't need to bear it in ourselves. And by trusting in this substitute, the righteous demands of the law may be answered with respect to you, your sin. And then having trusted in Christ Jesus, you may have the biblical assurance that you will not be put to shame. And that as He was raised, so shall you be. But each in His own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at His coming, those who have fallen asleep in Him. We've got to get that gospel right. 
But then we also got to be careful to distinguish between what's evangelism and what's what we could call pre-evangelism. You see, having a conversation with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member in which you make a case that there is a God is a good thing and a fine thing, but it's not evangelism. You see, someone may say, oh, there's no God, and you may say, well, yeah, there is, and you may reason with them and give them some convincing proofs. You may uh, use the line of argumentation that Paul uses in Romans 1, that you actually know that there is a God by virtue of what has been made, and yet you suppress the truth and unrighteousness and deny that there's a God. You may speak a good word for the existence of God, and that's a good thing, but you still haven't evangelized. Or you may show care and concern for someone who's grieving and put an arm around them and say, I'll pray for you. But you still haven't evangelized. That's a good thing to do. You should be compassionate, but you still haven't evangelized. You may talk to someone about the trustworthiness of the Bible and answer objections that they may have about why we can't trust the Bible. You may reason with them for four hours, but you still haven't evangelized. In fact, you may even reason with them about whether Christ Jesus really rose from the dead or not for four hours, but you still haven't evangelized. Because evangelism comes from the Greek word that simply means gospel. And so another way we could say evangelism is gospelizing. And the gospel is a message, a particular message about The good news, which is what gospel means, right? Good news of salvation in and through Christ Jesus. Until you've given people that message of good news, you haven't evangelized. So we need to distinguish even between evangelism and pre-evangelism. You might need to have some conversations with people before it's even plausible to them to have a gospel conversation. You may need to demonstrate a certain amount of care and empathy before people are even willing to listen. You may do some of these things alongside, around, prior to evangelism. But you need to actually get to the gospel. This message that Jesus Christ came into the world to live, to die, to rise for sinners. And that it's only by faith in Him, shifting your confidence away from yourself toward Christ Jesus, that you may be saved. Until you've done that, you haven't done evangelism. No one could possibly become a disciple. Go make disciples is our marching orders. Not go convince people that there is a God. Not go convince people that the Bible is trustworthy. Not go demonstrate that Christians are caring and empathetic. Go make disciples. Until you've actually given people the means by which they may become disciples. You haven't obeyed the injunction in Matthew 28. So let us go to make disciples with the gospel on our lips. Get that good news to people. And let us not only take opportunities, but also make opportunities for the gospel. Over the next, God willing, 
30, 40, 50 more years that I may be here. You guys are going to hear me say some things over and over again. And this is, this is one of them. We all know that we're supposed, what we're supposed to do when someone comes and says, what must I do to be saved? As the Philippian jailer did. We all know we're supposed to tell them about Jesus. But how many of you have ever had that experience? Where someone comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? Probably not all of us. Probably few of us. And even if you've had that experience, it's probably been relatively few and far between. Which means if you're waiting for that to happen, before you evangelize, you're going to be waiting a long time. So we need to not only take opportunities for evangelism, but we need to make opportunities for evangelism. Figure out, or think about at least, or try, how can I steer this conversation first toward the things of God? And then next, having begun to have a spiritual conversation with someone, how can I get this to the gospel? Not just a spiritual conversation, but the gospel. We've been talking for two hours about the existence of God. How can we get from here to the gospel? We've had many, many conversations about the trustworthiness of the Bible. When can we talk about Jesus? His life, His death, His resurrection. How do we get there? You need to be in the driver's seat there. And not just follow the conversation wherever it may lead, but lead the conversation somewhere. In order to tell people what they must do to be saved. Namely, as Paul answered the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we do need to go. It is the mission of the church. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We must evangelize. Christ has commanded it. There's a practical necessity. For people can't believe in someone of whom they never heard. And they can't hear unless someone tells them. But above and beyond these things, we also have this assurance and this comfort and this encouragement that Christ will exercise His kingly dominion over those people whom the Father gave to Him. Spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. Spoken of in Revelation chapter 5. Spoken of in John chapter 6. Christ shall have his kingdom. Jesus shall reign. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This ought to be a great encouragement to us as we obey, as we fulfill the mission of the church to evangelize. We're going to sing a song called Jesus Shall Reign in a moment, but for now just listen to the words of the first three verses. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore, and I'll say implicitly, His kingdom shall stretch from shore to shore. 
till moons shall wax and wane no more. To Him shall endless prayer be made, and endless praises shall crown His head. His name, like sweet perfume, shall rise with every morning sacrifice. People and realms of every tongue shall implicitly shall dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. Would we long for that day described there? Would we long for that day when every tear shall be wiped away? The dwelling place of God is with man. Will we long for that day when the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them? Will we long for that day when the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox? Would we long for that day? Would we long for the day when the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, when no one will hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain? Would we long for that day? Would we long for that day when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea? And may we work towards that day, Doing what God has commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. And may we trust that this Jesus, this David, this King, who has been given a kingdom, shall have it according to the will of our triune God. And that includes not only a land, but a people. May we trust then that Jesus, the King, indeed shall exercise his kingly office, convincing, subduing, upholding, delivering, and preserving all those that the Father has given to him unto his eternal kingdom, over each and every one of whom Jesus has been appointed to reign in the renewed earth. Jesus shall reign. It's ought to be a great encouragement to us as we fulfill the mission of the church.